Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a privilege to be here with you all this morning. Thank you, Mike, for that introduction. Um, I am, as Mike said, here with my wife, Lucy, over there of four years this week, and uh, my daughter, Leah, is in the nursery. Would you bow in a word of prayer with me at this time? Our great God and King, we do pause before your presence uh, to give you thanks for your goodness and mercy toward us. Our Father, we count it a privilege to assemble here as your people to worship you and to sing praises to your name and to hear your word preached. Our Father, I pray that you would empower me by your spirit. And Lord, I pray that this message would build up the saints. Lord, that it would comfort the afflicted. Lord, be good news to the lost. But most of all, bring glory to your name. And it's to that end that we strive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, this morning, our passage uh, will come from Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 87. And that can be found on page 586 in your Bibles. <clears throat> Psalm 87, page 5. 86 in your Bibles. And these are the words that are recorded in Psalm 87. Of the sons of Korah, a psalm, a song. He has set his foundation on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush, and will say, This one was born in Zion. Indeed of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. This is the reading of the word. Thanks be to God. I heard somebody. Thank you. As Mike indicated earlier, I grew up in the great nation of South Florida, the city of Miami in particular. And growing up in Miami was an interesting thing for me. I had many, many interesting experiences growing up in Miami. I got an opportunity to interact with many cultures and many <clears throat> subcultures. <clears throat> in fact, <clears throat> it was so interesting <clears throat> because I got an opportunity to experience the creativity of God uh, in the nations and in the various cultures and the peoples that reside down in Miami, Florida. In fact, we had several festivals growing up as a child. One was something called Calle Ocho, which means 8th Street in Spanish, where there would be a celebration and dancing on the street. There would be vendors, there would be food, music, celebration. Then we had something called Goombe that was rooted in Bahamian history where there'd be 
Junkanoo bands dancing in the street and there would be food, all kinds of festivities, etc., etc. There would be a big parade that marched down Grand Avenue and Coconut Grove. There would be DJs posted on <clears throat> at various establishments along the way. And everybody danced and had a good time as they celebrated the Bahamian heritage. And then we also had something called Reggae Fest, where at the Bayfront Park there would be reggae music played and there would be all sorts of vendors. And again, there would be good food, jerk chicken, there would be curry chicken, there would be rice and peas, there would be all kinds of things served there, boiled green bananas, and I myself being a product of a Jamaican man and black American woman, experienced that sort of creativity and fun my entire life growing up in Miami. But that was on a social and civic front. It was in high school when the Lord grabbed a hold of my heart and I experienced something incredible and God's plan with respect to the nations. One day we had a prayer day at our school, and it was Christian in orientation. And I stepped off the bus, and I saw people that did not look like me standing in front of the pole preparing to pray to Jesus Christ. I saw people that didn't speak English like me, I saw people that were not American like me. I saw men, I saw women that did not look like me. And it was at that point where I realized, where I should say at that point, excuse me, I could not appreciate nor did I realize what God was doing in my life or in his plan for redemptive history. I had no understanding of this grand scheme, this grand story of what God was doing. But years later, once I got a theology to make sense of all these experiences, I look back and I say to God that I'm so grateful, that I'm so thankful that he gave me just a taste of what he was up to. And in retrospect, I look back on those years of my life standing in front of the school praying with people that don't like that don't look like me and something right now as a nearly 30 year old man something about it resonates with me something about it sits well with me something about it makes me want to see that happen more often and what the psalmist declares this morning is that there will come a time where people from every nation tribe and tongue will stand around the throne, the heavenly throne, singing praises forevermore. Yes, there will come a time where people from different ethnic extractions will stand and praise Jesus for eternity. And that is what the psalmist is communicating. That's what the psalmist is presenting us with this morning. This beautiful picture of a city where nations that did not Know God before will come to know him and will know him for eternity. And I divided our passage into three points this morning for our consideration. And then I have a few applications 
that I believe uh, we can take away from this passage. The first point, or the first division, if you will, is the foundation of Zion found in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, the inhabitants of Zion found in verses 4 through 6. And then lastly, the praise of Zion found in verse 7. Look with me at the first division, the foundation of Zion. The psalmist says in verse 1, He has set his foundation on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. He has founded this wonderful city on top of the holy mountain. The psalmist right here is not, not, not communicating to us that the foundation of this city is, uh, situated on the mountain. This, this city finds its strength or finds its support because of this mountain. No, the psalmist is not dealing with geography right now. The psalmist is dealing with a spiritual reality, and that is this holy city was founded by God. The foundation of this city is God. That's who the founder of this beautiful city, this city called Zion, is, the God of Israel. And Zion is the poetic name for the city of Jerusalem. It's concerned with God's presence with his people in a special way. God dwelled amongst the people in Israel in a special way in the city of Jerusalem. And that's what Zion means. That's, that's what we talk, that's what it means when we talk about Zion, when we, we, we refer to Zion. How did God dwell there? God dwelled there by His Spirit. We're talking about the same Spirit that dwelled in the tabernacle in Exodus 40, that descended upon the tabernacle. We're talking about the same spirit, the same glory of God that filled the temple after its construction. It was the place of worship, the place of sacrificial offerings. It was the place of theological education. It was the place of salvation, if you will. And the psalmist said that God loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Why did God choose to dwell there in Jerusalem in a special way and not any other place where Jacob, where any of the other tribes of Israel dwell? God chose this place out of his free love, as John Calvin says. It had nothing to do with the beauty. It had nothing to do with the geography. It had nothing to do with anything else so special that God decided to take up residence. There was out of his free love that God decided to make this place his dwelling. Much like how he deals with us in our salvation. There's nothing that's so beautiful about us that will cause God to set his affection upon us. In fact, he sets his affection upon us in spite of, despite our, if you will, lack of beauty. The psalmist says in verse 3, glorious things are said of you, O city of God. And according to the psalmist, there are some laudable things. There are some things that are worth praising God about concerning this city. And other psalmists agree with this too. Psalm 46, verses 4 and 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. 
the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Psalm 48 verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Verse 2. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. So this great city was founded by God. That is the foundation of this city. And according to Psalm 87, there are yet more things to be said about this city of Zion, more glorious things to be said about this city. Look with me at verses four through six, where we'll see our our second point and the centerpiece of this text. Verse four, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre, along with Cush, and will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. So we see the inhabitants of Zion. In verses four through six. And what we have here is God revealing his program of salvation that extends beyond the gates, beyond the boundaries of ethnic Israel to that of some of Israel's most fierce enemies. So God is saying within my redemptive plan, Israel, I am going to extend my salvation to people beyond the gates of ethnic Israel. In fact, I'm going to extend my salvation to some of our most fierce enemies. People who spoke blasphemy against God. I'm going to extend my salvation. People who plotted to destroy you, Israel. I am going to extend my salvation. And this is also Psalm 87 also reiterates the promise that God made to Abraham to be a blessing to all nations. If you looked at Rahab, it's a it's a nickname given to Egypt and a mythological sea monster with great powers that oppose God. And that's fitting for Egypt because we know that Egypt once oppressed the people of God. God raised up Moses to deliver them. And then Pharaoh still after Moses delivered them after God delivered them. Pharaoh still pursued the people to destroy them. And so we're talking about fierce enemies of God. Babylon, enemies who oppressed God's people and destroyed the temple, laid waste to the temple under King Nebuchadnezzar. Philistia and Tyre, according to Psalm 83, were co-conspirators to destroy the people of God. And then Cush, we see God's salvation that extends to other ethnicities. Cush from the Ethiopian region. Non-ethnic Israelites. And when God says, among those who acknowledge me, we're not just talking about people acknowledging, just saying, oh yeah, that's the God of Israel. We're talking about a relationship That's what it means to know God. It means not only to know him, but to be known by him. That's what God is saying in this psalm, that these people, different ethnicities, 
and enemies will come to have a relationship with me. I will be their God and they will be my people. I feel like we get a taste of this in our neighborhood all the time. Our neighbor across the street from us is Polish. Our neighbor to the right of us is Puerto Rican. Our neighbor to the left of us is Puerto Rican. We have some Anglo neighbors just to the right of them. We have black American neighbors just behind us. So I get, we get a small microcosm of this grand day where we'll all be standing around the throne. And we love to get together and have fun with each other. In fact, I was just talking to my, my Polish neighbor uh, two days ago. And she just opens up and she shares all kinds of things with me. And, and then we sometimes pray and talk about Jesus. And then my Puerto Rican neighbors, we go to their house. They come to our house. We exchange food with them. They, they bring food to us. They watch our daughter. We watch their daughter. And sometimes this can be challenging because we don't all speak the same language. English is our first language. Polish and Spanish is their native language, respectively. But we work hard and we press hard to communicate with each other. Why? Because of our common bond in Christ. Because we understand that that what, what makes us closer, what, what makes us similar is greater than the things that separates us. In fact, my daughter has uh, picked up some of the tendencies of my Hispanic neighbors, and I love it. Uh, one day when I was talking to Leah, and I want her to know Spanish, and I want her to know it well, I said something to her, and in her baby dialect, as best she could, she responded to me, blah, blah, blah. Not a goo-goo gaga or a daddy or this or that and the other. So I thought, ah, something's influencing the way she speaks. So I went and told my Spanish there, I said, Anna, Leah is starting to pick up Spanish. She's talking Spanish in her baby talk, I'm telling you. And she said, oh, really? And I said, watch, watch when I pick up today. So when we were leaving, Anna said, adios, Leah, te amo mucho, which means bye, I love you a lot. To which Leah responded, blah, 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 blah. And Anna said, ah, oh, Leah, habla espanol. And said, I see, Anna, I told you, Leah is picking up Spanish. <laughs> and so why do we, why do we press hard to make this work? Because we realize that God is up to something in uniting us. God is up to something in bringing the nations to himself. And 4B, it says, and we'll say this one was born in Zion. Right there in 4B, not born literally in Zion, not born literally in, in ethnic Israel or in the ge geographical region of Jerusalem. But here, the word in the Hebrew, Dr. Furtado says, a Hebrew scholar says, it pictures the nation's belonging to Jerusalem just as much as someone who had been born in Jerusalem, literally speaking. So in effect, when God says this one and that one will say that they were born there, it is as though, it is as though the God of Israel belonged to us just as much as he did ethnic Israel. That is the force of being born 
in Zion. God is saying here in this passage that it is almost as though you were literally born here. And this does not mean that your ethnic extraction or your ethnic heritage is given up. In fact, it means that your creativity is redeemed and you are brought in to this city. In effect, you have a dual citizenship. I have a friend who's uh, just got installed at a church down in the Bahamas uh, recently that we attended. And he was sharing with me that in the Bahamas, you can have a dual citizenship if your father was if your father is a native of Bahamas and you were born in a different land, you can retain a dual citizenship all the way up until you're the age of 21, at which point you must declare either the citizenship or the, the land of your father or you must declare the land of your birth. And so what what is happening right here in this passage is that we will all those of us who have placed our trust or those of us who have come to know the God of Israel, which the psalmist speaks about, we will retain our ethnic creativity, but it will be redeemed in this city of Zion. Verse five, indeed of Zion, it will be said this one and that one were born in her and the most high himself will establish her again. And verse verse five reinforces verse four and places the establishing of Zion as a future event. So on the one hand, we see the psalmist in verse 1 saying that this city has been founded, this city is established. Yes, that is true, but what the psalmist would have us to know is that there is a future occurrence where there will be a greater establishing, something even greater will happen in this city of Zion. So we have the one hand that it has been founded, the Lord loves this place, he's dwelled there, but there is a future Zion to which we should look. There's a future event to which we should look. And in verse 6, the Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. Now, when you read the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, if something is mentioned twice, you pay attention. If something is mentioned three times, the text is screaming at you saying, pay attention. Okay, so the psalmist wants us to pay attention here. All right, he's mentioned born and Zion several times in this passage. And while we see that, yes, we understand that there is a sense in which there's a book of life. Not a sense, there is a book of life. Names have been recorded in this book already. But as people come to know the God of Zion, it is though it is as if, Though God were going around and, and stamping your name, stamping a seal, saying this one is protected. This one is assured. This one is guaranteed. Nothing will unsettle your name on this roll. So God is going around recording names on his register as the nations come to know the God of Zion. It is it is his heavenly attendance uh, booklet, if you will. It's like. It's like uh, the first day of school when you are going or when you're moving up a grade. Uh, you're already in the registry at that school and a teacher chooses you and places you in her class or the uh, cap office or the attendance office or whoever's in, in, in whoever is responsible for doing that places you in certain classrooms. And on the first day, the teacher calls your name 
She takes roles. She looks at her registry. She looks at the attendance. And so what what the psalmist is saying here is that at the last day, when God takes the heavenly role, your name as one who has come to know the God of Zion will be there. When he says, Mike, you'll raise your hand and say here. When he says, Lucy, you'll say here. When he says, Bobby, you will say here. When he says, Jamie, you will say here. That's what God is doing when he is creating this registry. And look with me at the third division here, verse 7, the praises of Zion. Verse 7, as they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. This is a celebration in this city. Beloved, our charismatic brothers and sisters got something right. There will be dancing There will be singing. There will be rejoicing in this city. This, in fact, is a song, scholars say, that was probably set to the tune of some music at a at a at a festival or some feast day for Israel. So this this is a celebration song. That's why there's dancing. That's why they're singing because of what God is doing. And why are they dancing and singing? It's because Israel realizes that the nations will say that their God is the most high, that their God is the sovereign king of creation. They're rejoicing because they know that those who were once enemies will now be their brothers and sisters, will now be their friends. There's rejoicing and singing Because there's hope for the nations. There's hope for those who were God-fearers, those who believed in the God of Israel, and those who traveled and made an annual uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And when this psalm was read, it probably gave them encouragement and hope that the true and living God does extend his salvation to those beyond the bounds of ethnic Israel. All my fountains are in you, the psalmist says. And what we have here are fountains, water, springs envisioned. Similar to that of Joel, Psalm 46, which I read already, Ezekiel 47. And this, in all likelihood, pertains to life and fertility. And it's not a stretch to say that the city of Zion will be a life-giving place, especially if God's presence dwells there in a special way. In this city, there will be no death. There will be no aging. It will be a city of eternal life that gives life nonstop. And Israel should have taken this passage and ones like these and been a light to the Gentiles, should have been a witness to surrounding nations. And we see partial fulfillment along the way throughout Israel's history as people come to fear the God of, Is- of Israel and they are and they are proselytized, etc. But it's in Jesus Christ where we see this psalm fulfilled ultimately. In fact, it's in Acts chapter two at Pentecost where we see those who were once enemies of God come to be known 
come to be friends of God, come to grab hold of the God of Israel. And who is this God? Jesus Christ. God makes himself known in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And it's at Pentecost where we see people coming at the proclamation of Jesus Christ and bowing to him and accepting him and hearing the gospel preached in their native tongue. That's where we see this event fulfilled. We see it in Galatians chapter 3 where where Paul says that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Paul continues with Psalm 87 in the backdrop as he develops this allegory with Hagar and Sarah in Galatians chapter 4 where he says, the ones who are born of Sarah, and that is spiritually the ones who come from a birth like Isaac, that is you were born again, you were born by the Spirit, you were born because of the promise. Those are the ones who are members of the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we see the promise to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul says the heavenly Jerusalem, the ones who place their trust in Jesus are the ones who can say, are the ones who can say I was born in Zion. The ones who place their trust in Jesus are the ones whose passport will say born in Zion. This is how the God of Zion, this is how the God of Israel has made himself known in his son Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 11 Through 13, Paul says here, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you who once were far away, excuse me, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Beloved, I want you to see this morning that we were Philistia, we were Tyre, we were Cush. Okay, we were the ones who were far off, helpless, unable to save ourselves by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been brought near. We have been brought close to the God of Israel. It's through Jesus Christ, our mediator, that we're able to say that we are born in Zion. Now, how do we live in light of this gospel truth that those of us who are enemies have been brought near by the grace of Jesus Christ? How do we live in light of the fact that God is saving people from the nation's people from tribes, people from various tongues. How do we live in light of that? I want to present what I believe are three things before we close. Number one, take advantage of opportunities to show hospitality to people that are different than us. You see, it's quite simple to open our home to people who have the same interests, people who look like us, people who won't argue with us, Carbon copies, if you will. 
But I pray that we would have the mindset of God, of Christ, and that we would open our homes, that we show hospitality to people that are different from us, whether it's education, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's male or female. And I think it's important for us to realize that Central Florida is a global center. And and we've got all sorts of different ethnicities, as I mentioned before. But not only Central Florida, but look at the ethnic demographic of our nation. The U.S. Census Bureau, excuse me, says that minorities, which constitute one third of the population now, are expected to become majority by 2042. To be exact, that is 54 percent. And then by 2050, excuse me, then by 2030, minorities will comprise more than half of all children. I think it's important that we catch on to what God is doing and bringing people right here to our shores. I am all about foreign missions. I support it 100%. But we don't even have to cross the Atlantic because God's bringing people across the Atlantic to us. And we should take advantage of that as a denomination so that we would reflect the beauty of what it will be like in the end. We should not only be in tune to what's going on in our culture, we should continue to pray for and support for missions. We should pray for a sweep of the Holy Spirit through Islam. God brought some of Israel's most fierce enemies to salvation. We're not talking about just common disagreements. We're talking about people that tried to destroy the people of God, people that blasphemed the name of God. And beloved, we have a wonderful opportunity right here. All we have to do is turn on the evening news. There's no shortage. There's no shortage of radical Islamic terrorism. These are people that we can pray for. Thank you. You stole one of my application points this morning with the kids. These are people that we could and should pray for. I pray, we all should pray that God will send just a revival through there, starting with their leaders on down. And I will caution us not to be consumed with anger to the point so much where we could care less about praying for them. And I'm not advocating any of their radical ideals. Justice where, where, there's, where there's radical misconduct and crimes against humanity, I think justice should be handled and handled swiftly. But let's not forget that we are called to pray for our enemies and love our enemies. And I think we can pray with expectation because it's a part of God's redemptive plan to save enemies. And then lastly, for an application, how do we relate to one another in the body of Christ? How do we relate to one another when we don't look the same? We don't have the same educational background. How do we relate to each other, male and female? I believe that this calls us to love one another with charity and with respect, to have the mind of Christ and to consider ourselves, consider each other more important than ourselves. I think that's what we can take away from here, too. 
And as I take my seat this morning, there was an old preacher that I knew from South Alabama who I was eating dinner with along with another preacher that's just a few years older than me. And the question came up, why do we even do things across racial lines? Why do we have these racial reconciliation conferences at our church? This was at a former church that I attended. Why? Why do we do that? I just listened. I didn't give him any highfalutin theological answer. I just listened to his pain. It was evident that he was skeptical because of his experiences in and out of the church across racial lines. But I would say for those of us who feel that same sort of skepticism and same sort of cynicism like that of my preacher friend, that Revelation 7-9 tells us we can be encouraged because in the end we do win. In fact, John beheld and looked and saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, a multitude that he could not count. So what you see in Psalm 87 is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns. We all will be standing around the throne dancing and do- dancing in doxological frenzy from different ethnic backgrounds, etc., 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 rejoicing, saying that we were born in Zion. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have loved us out of your free love. Our Father, we thank you that there was nothing in us that would cause us to that would cause you to love us. In fact, we were marred by sin and so unbeautiful, but yet you placed your love upon us and made us beautiful. And Father, I pray that we take that message and that we would share it with the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.